Straight out of Scotland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of St. Andrews. What is a human person? Is a human person completely physical, or does a human person have a soul? In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Tom Atkinson to discuss the debate between physicalists and dualists over human nature. Tom explains different arguments for and against the existence of the soul. We also talk about the implications of this debate for understanding immortality and the resurrection of the dead. In the next episode, Tom and I will continue the conversation on human nature and immortality. If you have questions or topics that you would like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here's Tom and I talking about souls. Enjoy. All right, so Tom, you work on issues related to personal identity and Christian understandings of life after death. And today I want to explore some of those issues with you if we can. So one of the things I would like to start is just a really basic philosophical question. Just just what am I? I mean, I clearly I have a body because I, you know, I can feel my body, I can see my body, but am I nothing but my body? Is there anything more to me? Great question. Thanks, Ryan. So, um, I mean, in philosophy, there are a plethora of uh, responses to that question, what am I? Um, but I guess to narrow it down, we could uh, have perhaps two broad um, categories in response to that question, what am I? And those those are uh, answers that come from a physicalist perspective and answers that come from a dualist perspective to that question of what am I? So here goes. Physicalists, or most physicalists, will say something along the following lines. Uh, you are a human organism. And substance dualists, or dualists, would say you are a soul or a combination of a body and a soul or something like that. But let's start with the physicalists first. Mm -hmm. So um, philosophers who answer the question, what am I, with you are a human organism, tend to mean uh, something like the following. The things that we refer to with our personal pronouns like I, things like that, those things are substances and those substances are made up entirely of matter. They tend to mean things like fermions, quarks, leptons, all those kind of things that mm -hmm. scientists study were kind of made up of that stuff. And we don't have any immaterial or non-physical parts like a soul. So that's, that kind of tells us something about what we are according to materialists. We're material things uh, substances made entirely from matter. So this answer to the question, what am I, we actually might call an animalist uh, answer, mm, okay. which is a particular kind of physicalism. Uh, now, not every physicalist subscribes to this view, but it's a relatively popular view amongst physicalists uh, that you are an animal or a human organism. And uh, most frequently, as I said, animalism is a materialist or physicalist answer to that question. Yeah. So that's the, the first horn, if you like. Okay. So what, what about the other one? Uh, what about the other answer to the question, what am I? Well, the other answer is you are a soul or a combination of body uh, and soul. Uh, and folk who answer the, answer the question this way, you said, are dualists. That's because they think that you are two kinds of thing, dual, dual kind of thing, uh, both material uh, and immaterial or physical and uh, non-physical. The soul being an immaterial thing and the body being a material thing. 
Now, some dualists think that we just are that immaterial thing. Uh, we just are souls. Okay. So people like Richard Swinburne takes this view. Uh, but then some philosophers think that we are both body and soul kind of together, a combination of the two things. So people like Thomas Aquinas famously took this view. And Christians, uh, by and large, have been dualists, at least Gosh, someone should do a historical study mm-hmm. as to just just when it became the case that some Christians started to not be dualists. But uh, I'd I'd probably it was safe to say have been dualists up until I don't know the last couple of hundred years at least. That's my uh, guess because I know within the Hindu tradition there it goes way back. Like there is like a whole ancient uh, school of thought that is just like you know materialism. That's through and through. That's just the case. But within Christianity, I'm not aware of anybody um, until you get to like the modern era. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, that's interesting. I really think that um, maybe the last 50 years, something like mm-hmm. that is when it's become a real, I guess, a defined area within academia that, of people actually studying and putting forward this this view that you can be both a Christian and a, and a physicalist. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the the history of it is not really clear up until about yeah maybe fifty years ago so. right yeah so 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 I want to make sure I'm following along though so if I'm asking the question what am I uh, you've given me two answers I could give so one is a physicalist where I just say well this physical body here it's open to empirical investigation whatever the scientist is studying that, that chunk of matter that's me that's yeah. just what I am whereas if I'm a dualist I could say well I'm I have this physical body. I'm not identical to this body. I'm identical to a non-physical soul, an immaterial soul. Or I'm another variation would be, well, I'm a combination of some sort of soul and body mm-hmm. in some sort of interesting kind of way. And so those are like the sort of views that they, they, they're main, mainly Christians affirm. There's some other options that are aware, but we're not just going to focus on these two. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's focus on the physicalist view first then. So you mentioned a minute ago that, you know, there's a lot of Christian physicalists within the last 50 years. And what I mean, when I was first studying this topic, I found that really surprising. I was really shocked to find out that, you know, Christians would affirm this because I just assumed, well, you're a Christian, you have to believe in the soul. But, you know, well, apparently that's not the case because there's a lot of Christians going, nah, no, I don't need a soul. Mm. Uh, so um, I'm assuming other people might be kind of surprised by this, too. So what are some reasons anybody, I guess, in general might think that physicalism is true, let alone a Christian? Yeah, great. Good question. Okay, good. So let alone a Christian. Mm-hmm. So more broadly, yeah, how how might anyone become a, right. a physicalist? Mm-hmm. So I'd like to say that there is some kind of positive physicalist reason to become a physicalist, if you like. Um, but that having studied the literature for you know a number of years, I just haven't found many positive arguments mm. for physicalism. That's not to say that's something problematic. I'd like to see one. That'd be interesting. But um, really, physicalists tend to say, well, substance dualism or something like it is false. And kind of what you're left with is physicalism, Mm. is what they tend to say. So you don't really see many arguments uh, for it. Um, But it's really, yeah, substance dualism, wrong. Well, what are we left with? Well, if you get rid of the soul, if you get rid of immaterial stuff, well, what you're left with is material stuff. Right. Okay. So yeah, so I don't have to give you a positive reason for my view because, well, all the other views have horrible problems they face. My view's fine. Okay. Well, I'll just stick with this. Yeah. So that's the idea for a lot of physicalists. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So then, well, let's look at dualism for a second then. Uh, what reasons are there for believing in the existence of souls? Sure. Well, okay. Well, there are a whole number of reasons for believing in the existence of souls, but maybe we go down the route of maybe splitting them into three kinds of reasons. Okay. So let's start with 
philosophical uh, reasons. So there have been a whole host of philosophical arguments for belief in the existence of the soul. You can, well, in Western philosophy at least, you can trace them right back to Plato, mm. all the way through to Descartes, and all the way through to the modern era, you, um, and contemporary philosophy, you get arguments for the existence of the soul. Uh, but perhaps the ones we should focus on, the ones that are being debated in contemporary literature at least, are arguments from consciousness for the belief that we have a soul. Okay. So those arguments kind of go something, something, something along these broad lines. It's like, so physicalists would posit that everything is describable by physics or something like that. Well, look, the, the substance dualist might say, well, here's this thing that doesn't seem to be described by physics, and therefore physicalism is false. Mm. Uh, and then they might give another argument to say, and what best supports that view is some kind of substance dualism. So we've got this data that needs explaining, and what best explains it. Physicalism can't explain it, so what best explains it is substance dualism, something like that. Okay, so so the strategy here for a dualist is to say, well, look, uh, I know certain things have to be true. Uh, certain things in my experience, certain things in the world, they have to be true. And so if the physicalist can't account for it, well, so much the worse for them. Like, you know, like my view does explain it. Yeah. That's Okay, so this is basic strategy. Yeah. Okay, okay, so keep going. Yeah, good. Yes, yeah, so that's basic, basic strategy. There have been a number of what philosophers call thought experiments. And these are ways in which philosophers try and get people to think about a certain scenario and derive certain truths from having thought about that. Uh, and one of the ones that substance dualists might use, or just people who think physicalism is false might use, mm -hmm. is something called uh, Frank Jackson's Mary's Room. Mm. So here you go. Here's a, it's a fun thought experiment. So enter into it with me. Mary is a scientist, and uh, not only that, she's a neuroscientist, and she understands uh, kind of everything that there is to know uh, in neuroscience. She's kind of the ideal neuroscientist, mm -hmm. and she spends all day kind of thinking about the brain and looking at the brain under a microscope and things like that. She knows all the facts there are to know, all the physical facts. She's got them all to hand. If uh, you ever wanted some advice for your physics homework or your neuro neuroscience homework, you'd go to Mary. Okay, so Mary's the person to ask for this. Yeah. Yeah, okay. But um, she lives in a black and white room, so she's mm. and she's been there since birth, and she's never seen any colour. Okay, um, oh, because, so because she's in this black and white room, so she's never seen anything else other than black and white. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. The funny thing is she knows about the neuro, neural correlates of colour. Mm. So she might know, for example, that oscillations in V4 is a, is a popular neural correlate of seeing colour. That's okay. a, a certain oscillation in your visual, an area of your visual cortex, V4. And so she knows that when, when those oscillations occur, you're seeing red or something mm. like that. Okay. So it seems like Mary knows all the physical facts. She knows everything that there is to know about the human brain, the human mind, everything. But then the question is, well, Mary steps outside or is let outside her black and white room into a world with vibrant colour. And all of a sudden she sees a red rose uh, growing. Now, the question is, does Mary learn anything new mm. by seeing this, this red rose? And it seems like the physicalist has to say, no, she doesn't, because she's party to all the physical facts already. Right. Everything that there is to know about it. But the it seems, although most people's intuitions are 
that she does learn something new. Namely, she learns what it's like to experience red, mm. the colour red, and that's something that she didn't have before. So the argument goes, well, look, here is a fact that's a non-physical fact. Mary experiences or has a direct knowledge of redness. There is a property of redness. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's an experiential property, I should say, of redness that she didn't have inside the room. And that's over and above the physical facts. So it seems that there's something non-physical. There are non-physical facts. That's the first step. Okay, so the first step is, you know, she's never seen red She's been in this black and white room, but if she were able to look at my brain while I'm while I'm looking at red, she could tell you, oh yeah, this is exactly what Ryan's brain is doing when Ryan sees red. But she herself has never actually experienced seeing red. And it seems like, well, yeah, well, obviously she's got to be learning something. Her knowledge of what it's like to see red, that's, it, there's got to be something there she gains when she finally sees red for the first time. Yeah. Okay, so this is the first step. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, well, and that, and that thing that she learns seems to be something. Uh, oh, that can't be explained by the physical. Fact. Right, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So then we're left with, well, what theory best explains mm. that there's this, the existence of this phenomenal properties, what philosophers call them, this experience, experiential properties of like redness or smells or what it's likeness, it's what mm-hmm. Thomas Nagel calls it. So this is where you get a battle of the theories commences. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, and you get, of course, you get physicalists who put forward various uh, responses to this problem. You get panpsychists or another view. They put various responses forward to this problem. But the substance dualist kind of says, well, look, here's here's an introspective, if you like, experiential non-physical property. And that seems to be something about me, Mm. something that I am experiencing. And so it seems to be that that property is somehow a part of a part of a non-physical being experiencing this non-physical property. Mm. Now, I know this is fairly hand-waving, but without going into the intricate details sure. of how the two, how the three positions, as it were, like uh, physicalism, substance dualism, panpsychism, debate this issue. I'm afraid that's all. That's as much as details. Sure, yeah, because without getting too technical, right. Um, but okay, so the big idea, though, being the dualist is going to say, look, I've got immaterial minds in my, in my metaphysical story. I've already got a nice, neat way of accounting for a mind, a non-physical mind, having non-physical, like, mental states, like, experiencing red for the first time. You physicalist, you don't have anything like that. So, well, I've got a nice story. You don't. Exactly. Uh, And I can account for this fact in the world that we all experience because we're all experiencing seeing red and all sorts of other things. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. So, yeah, as I say, that's... uh... You know, that's one line of of argument for belief in the existence of the soul that you Mm -hmm. might want to go down that route. And certainly substance dualists do go down that route. Today, there are are also other arguments, the philosophical arguments for the existence of the soul that we won't go into here, but it's perhaps worth mentioning. Sure. Uh, Issues with regards to personal identity. So how do I account for my identity across time? Well, Mm -hmm. um, it seems that substance dualism gives a, a plausible and credible account of how that might work we might get into that later on in this program mm-hmm. so but they're the they're the kind of philosophical arguments if you want an argument for belief in the existence of the soul but there, there are other reasons to believe in the existence of a soul and uh, one that i kind of really like because this is how i came to believe in the existence of the okay. soul or i shouldn't say came to believe in it it's Nobody gave me a philosophical argument and persuaded me of the belief that we have souls. I just, that's a belief I had already had and had always had. Oh, right. Yeah. 
So the question is, well, you know, well, what do I do about that? Well, so I don't really need to give an argument for my belief in the existence of the soul, so long as there's nothing wrong with my belief in the existence mm-hmm. of the soul, right? And so the, the burden, if you like, is on the non-substance dualist to say, to provide reasons for why my belief in the existence of the soul is somehow lacking justification. Okay, because um, like, because I do find myself with lots of beliefs. Well, before I decided to study philosophy and theology, you know, I just had all sorts of beliefs about that my parents had had minds of their own, mm. that God exists. That I mean, lots of different things that I I have free will, that I should be a good person. You know, I, I didn't I didn't have any reflection of these things. Don't give me reasons for these things. I just kind of like just thought it to be the case. And so you're saying, well, okay, well, right. What do we do in this case when you've got all these beliefs you find yourself with? Well, you start testing them. You see if there's problems with them. Well, if they come away unscathed, if they don't have any problems for them, you can continue to hold it. You're at least yeah. justified in continuing to hold it. So like a lot of people, they find themselves just believing, well, I am a soul and I have a body. Why? I don't know. It just seems right to me. Well, okay, well, let's test it. Here's some, you know, uh, I can't find any arguments against it. I'll just hang tight to the belief then. Yeah. And so that's, where the, so that's for you uh, and a lot of other dualists. This is, this is kind of how you go. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And they, you might think that... It, having been through that process of testing it mm-hmm. gives you even more justification for your belief in the existence of the soul rather than mere, we might say, warrant for your belief. Mm-hmm. Um, you, or to the degree that, well, look, you've been given really difficult problems to kind of approach. And yeah. if you haven't kind of found, oh, wow, they make me give up my belief in the existence of the soul, you might think, well, to some degree, that strengthens my justification for belief in the existence. Of the oh, right, because I've really put my beliefs up to scrutiny. Yeah. And I've really been able to say, no, I, I, I feel pretty good about these because I really tested them. So, I, yeah. I, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. All right, so, so now we've got this account of uh, physicalism and dualism on the table here. So what I want to do now is I want to look at more specific uh, Christian concerns for each mm-hmm. of you. In particular, like the Christian understanding of life after death. Um, but why don't you start by just telling me a bit about the basic Christian understanding of life after death? Sure, sure. So um, Christians traditionally believe, well, one, that you, you survive your death. So death is not the end. They believe that at some point you'll die, but that's not it. There's uh, something beyond the grave. Mm. Uh, and that's not merely going to be that your mind's uploaded into something or something like that. It's mm-hmm. no, a genuine kind of the same thing's going to persist at some, some time after your death. And they traditionally believe, Christians, that when you, when you die, your body goes into the ground and is rots and is eaten by worms. Your, if you like, you await what's called the resurrection. Um, so this is the moment that your body will be raised again mm. to life. Now, Christians tend to believe that that's all going to happen for most people. It's all going to happen on the last day, as some some theologians call it, or the day of resurrection, mm-hmm. or when Christ returns. So some future date, everybody's going to be resurrected. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And most Christians have believed that while you still exist between your death and burial and the day of resurrection, and you exist uh, in heaven, and you are, in some respects, awaiting the resurrection of your body. So you're waiting for your body to be raised again. And ultimately, what you're waiting for is for for everybody to be raised again, for you to your body and soul to be reunited, and for what's called the new creation, where mm-hmm. there'll be a world without pain or suffering or sin and things like that. Oh, okay, so like the universe itself is going to be made new. Yeah, okay. exactly. So yeah, that's a kind of potted kind of uh, description of life after death on 
Christianity. Okay. All right. So as you've explained it here, Christianity affirms a doctrine of like bodily resurrection. Uh, so I'm curious now how well physicalism and dualism fit with this Christian doctrine of resurrection. Uh, so again, let's just start with physicalism here. Like, so can you consistently believe in physicalism and the resurrection? Well, maybe not you personally, since you're a dualist, but can can anybody believe consistently that physicalism is true and the Christian doctrine of the resurrection is true? Sure. Well, great. It's important to remember that physicalists, if you like, need the resurrection for life after death. Hmm. So dualists have some kind of life after death without the resurrection. Namely, most dualists believe that your soul will continue to exist after death, be it naturally or maybe it has to create a uh, God has to do a miracle perhaps mm-hmm. for your soul to continue. But if physicalists want to believe in life after death, they have to believe in the resurrection. There's kind of no other way to go because you are in some sense identical with this material human organism. And for you to exist again, well, that material organism has to uh, exist exist again. So the question for physicalists is not really so much a question of uh, resurrection and what that actually entails. Mm-hmm. It's one of, one of identity. Mm. And is it possible on physicalism for this human organism that has been buried to exist at some later time? That's the kind of question underlying physicalism and the resurrection right because as you pointed out earlier in your average body after it dies it's put in the ground it's rot you know eat worms eat it other people get cremated they have their ashes spread all over the place uh, and so it seems like there's well, a lot of cases for most cases there's nothing left of the body by the time whenever this resurrection is going to happen there's nothing left of the body and if i'm identical to this body i i don't know what's going to be resurrected so this seems like a problem for, in terms of identity here yeah. So what's what's a way like a physicalist might try to get out of this? Good. Well, I guess an ancient way of getting out of it. I mean, the it's fascinating. The early church and theologians around the medieval era too loved this question mm. and talking about just how might God, although they weren't physicalists, they loved talking about how God might raise the body that was kind of a, has rotted and gone into the ground and spread throughout the biosphere and mm-hmm. things like that. So they came up with some really interesting stuff that, I mean, physicalists might be tempted to try their, try, you know, using those theories. And it's kind of like a, a reassembly theory, something like that, where perhaps God on the last day, on the day of resurrection, finds all those bits that composed you mm. uh, and he puts them all back together in just the right way. So it looks just like you. Um, and then maybe he, I don't know, zaps it or breathes life into it or something. And hey, presto, it seems like you've got you. Mm. So the, the question is, well, is is that acceptable to the physicalist? Now, there are, I mean, there's a huge literature on this, not only ancient literature and medieval literature, but contemporary literature too, uh, if you wanted to read it. There really is quite fun. But most physicalists tend to reject this reassembly view. The reason they reject the reassembly view is probably uh, an argument put forward by Peter Van Inwagen. Uh, and it goes something like this. So let's say God could reassemble you from the bits that composed you at your last moment of existence. So maybe you're in a tragic situation where you're blown to bits by a bomb. Mm. And it's fairly instantaneous. Or maybe God finds all those bits and puts you back together again. Peter Van Inwagen says, OK, let's say that's a plausible view. Well, if that's a plausible view, well, there's nothing to stop God in that case 
from composing you from all the bits that composed you when you were seven as well. Oh, right. Presumably they no longer compose you mm-hmm. at the moment of your death. Yeah. And so let's say he does this and he, he brings these two beings together. Now, which one, says Van Inwagen, would be you? Would you be the, the seven-year-old you? Or would you be the, the you that made out of the bits that most recently composed you? And uh, Peter Van Inwagen put this kind of scenario forward, says... Uh, you would be, it seems you'd be neither or both, it would seem. And since Van Wagen says not both, uh, then neither. And why could I not be both? Uh, well, Van Wagen seems to imply that you can't be both because he says it's logically impossible for a concrete object like you to be wholly in two different places uh, at once. So that's kind of his rejection of the reassembly model. And I guess lots of physicalists today, for similar reasons or related reasons, have come to reject the reassembly model. Okay, so on the reassembly again, like, so I can't be identical because, well, I can't be located in two different places, but the reassembly view entails, well, yeah, yeah, you can. And so like, well, then I've got to get rid of the reassembly view. Okay, so that's out. So that's not going to work for a Christian physicalist. What's another option then? I'll keep talking about Peter Van Wagen because one, he's a really good philosopher. And two, he's thought a lot about this and is a Christian materialist. Mm -hmm. But what does Peter do in this scenario? Well, Professor Van Wagen says something uh, along these lines. He says, uh, well, here goes. Here's the story. Well, what you need for personal identity from one point to another point is, uh, he'll say, the continuation of life processes of an organism. That's what you need. Okay. So let's flesh that out a bit more because that's going to be an important kind of thing. Mm -hmm, Because I often find this a bit vague too. Uh, So yeah, so it'll be good. Cool, yeah. So let's put it this way. Animalists really think that you are a human organism, but you persist from one moment to the next. So what makes you the same person at one time to a person at another time is the fact that the little bits that compose you at that first time are constituents of a life process, a singular continuing life process. The reason why they say that is because it can't be merely the bits that compose you have to be the same. Because, you know, if I sneeze, then it's maybe I I lose some bits that compose me. And then I'd cease to exist, and nobody wants that to happen. Mm -hmm. And if I eat something, then the bits that compose me would change, and then I'd cease to exist, and nobody wants that absurd scenario to Mm -hmm. happen either. So, I mean, what the analysts have done is they've realized, well, that's not really how human beings work, right? What, what we are are organisms, and we, uh, the bits that compose us are constituents of life processes. And so what the animalist will say is that the really important thing for identity is that it's that same life process that's continued from one moment to the next. Okay, okay. Now, if so I've got a life process, but it, what if I die? It seems like the life process is going to end, so then how do I get to the resurrection? Because I've lost the thing that, that keeps my identity going. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Now, some people might say, well, God could just start that life process again, mm-hmm. and it be the same life process. And, you know, hey, presto, easy peasy, you've got resurrection. But again, interestingly, most Christian physicalists reject this view and they tend to reject this view because they think, well, natural processes don't admit of any gaps. Ah, okay. um, You're not allowed gaps in natural processes. Mm -hmm. So they may say, well, yeah, okay, you can have gaps in other kinds of process, like maybe 
uh, a theatrical play is often an example mm-hmm. the, the mix of gaps you know you might go to a play uh, and then it stops and everybody goes out for the intermission and then comes back in again and the play starts again but there's something about natural processes that don't seem to admit of those kinds of gaps like Van Wagen himself says well it would be odd to say for example the, the snows of yesteryear occurred again today. So, you know, a snowstorm that happened in 1980s is mm-hmm. the exact same snowstorm that happened today. It's just natural processes just don't work that way. And since a life is a natural process, they can't stop and restart again, it seems. Right, because I definitely have the intuition that if I go to see a play, it's going to have a break in it. That's fine. And then play starts up again. Yeah. That's just the nature of plays. Whereas it feels really weird to say, mm, you know, I'm existing for a while. Then I cease to exist. Ah, well, then I exist again, you know, that does feel very odd to me. And I don't I don't like that. So I understand why a a lot of Christian physicalists would have that same intuition and go, no, I don't want this sort of gappy existence. Exactly. Or Mm -hmm. any any natural process Mm -hmm. like uh, trees, you know, for a tree to be growing and then it to be chopped down and obliterated. And then the very same process seems odd to say would start again at some later time. Yeah, because it does seem if, if I destroy a tree. And then I, you know, all of a sudden I have a new one in my garden and I'm like, hey, Tom, it's the same tree. I think you would rightly go, no, there's no way. (laughs) That's just crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So good. So, you know, it seems like they're kind of stuck, Christian physicists Mm -hmm. here. But Peter Van Wagen being the incredibly intelligent guy that he is, um, I don't think at the time of writing this article he was a Christian or at least his Maybe he's on a journey, I'm not sure. I think that's right. I think when he wrote this paper on the resurrection, I think he had not fully converted to Christianity. I think he was still exploring just, is it possible? Is Christianity at least possibly coherent? Yeah, Yeah, I think that's right. So, uh, I mean, he was already committed to his physicalism. Mm -hmm. So he kind of thought, well, okay, let's try and and give a coherent account of the Mm -hmm. resurrection and see if this is something I can uh, adopt. So he kind of goes, okay, well, the aim here is to give a metaphysically possible scenario at which what seems impossible, a dead person existing again at some later time, is actually, uh, it turns out, is possible. Mm -hmm. So this is some sort of story where there's just no contradictions. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is his story. So he kind of says, okay, so let's say you get blown to bits by a bomb uh, and you uh, cease to exist. Van Wagen says, well, it actually only seems that way. Mm. That's not what actually happens. So he says, well, what, what might actually happen? It's possible. Just at the last moment of your existence, so the minute or the second or the millisecond before you get blown to bits, God kind of snatches your body away uh, for safekeeping, he says. Mm. Now, of course, what happens is when you go to visit a dying loved one on, on their deathbed and they take their final gasp of breath, they don't, of course, disappear. So Van den Wagen says, okay, well, look, maybe God replaces immediately that dying person with a lookalike. So we're none the wiser. Right. Um, so the, the thing we bury in the ground or, or burn or whatever is just a lookalike of our loved one. The real loved one is with God in heaven awaiting the day of resurrection. Mm. Okay. And it's life processes to some degree are continuing and then on the day of resurrection, I don't know, maybe God wake, maybe it's sleeping and God wakes it up. Van Wagen doesn't say or mm-hmm. something like that. And hey, there you go. Look, it seems like you've got identity from the moment of death to the day of, uh, in inverted commas, resurrection, mm. where God maybe rouses this you that he's kept for safekeeping or the being that has died that he's been kept for safekeeping. 
So Van Wagen says, hey presto, look, I've given you a metaphysically possible scenario at which on physicalism a human organism dies uh, and is resurrected. And he says, hey look, it's consistent. You can be both a Christian physicalist and believe in the resurrection and have identity and all of these problems that were first put to us, they're all solved by this thought experiment. Right. Okay. So, so, so again, I guess I want to like make sure I'm following. So say I'm a physicalist and I'm like, well, okay, well, I'm about to die. My last wishes are that you spread my ashes all over Disney world. It's illegal to do that from what I understand. Okay. Um, but I, I'm just a jerk. So I want to see, you know, my family members try to somehow spread my ashes all over Disney world. Uh, well, so I'm about to die, but God just like grabs me really quickly and puts some other body that looks like me, just puts a lookalike there. I don't know what happens to me. I'm knocked out apparently and then just laying around in heaven. And so my family members, they're not actually spreading my body around, uh, that my ashes around Disney World. They're spreading some other lookalike yeah. ar- around. Well, that feels weird. Yeah. Like, again, I can't point out a contradiction here, but it just feels weird. Um, but I'm also kind of curious, like, is this really death though? Because... Yeah. My life process hasn't ended. Yeah. Uh, I guess I've just kind of been put in some sort of... Well, I guess I'll go stick with the Disney World theme because there's that, that uh, conspiracy that Walt Disney's like cryogenically frozen somewhere. Yeah. Well, it seems like that's what God's doing, right? He's not really... I'm not dead. He's just kind of like cryogenically like freezing me somewhere in heaven. He's going to wake me up. Uh, I don't know. Just, uh, something seems... I feel like something's missing in the story here. Like I, A worry I have with a lot of stories like this is... It gives you a story without contradictions because it doesn't give you all the details. And so, hmm, yeah, well, I don't have any problems because I didn't give you the full story. <laughs> if I gave you the full story, I'd have some problems, but I'm not going to give you that. So that's, I guess that's a worry I have. But I'm happy to grant for the moment, though, that this is at least a logically possible story. So they can have some sort of way to consistently tell this. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode when Tom and I continue to debate human nature and life after death. 